The New Testament is laid out in a particular way. There are four Gospels, one right after the other, and they each have their own uh, vantage point. They have a story that they're telling. It's very similar to the story that's being told in the other Gospels. Uh, it reminds me some of the musical nature of the wind chimes on my deck. Each has a separate note, but yet together they create this picture, this image, that we can come together and say, this is the story of Jesus. Each person telling it in their own particular way. And then it is followed by the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostle, that follows these, these stories, these gospel stories. And the book of Acts is almost like a camera, a camera that's following the action after Jesus is resurrected and then ascends and departs and the camera begins to peer out there and watch the acts of the apostles, what they're doing, and the way in which the story is told about what happens. The camera's focus begins with the original disciples, that little cluster, that group. But then it begins to widen, the lens widens, and different ones step up. And at one point, Peter steps into the spotlight, and he begins to preach. And it's an amazing thing because the Spirit of God descends upon them. The living energy of the Spirit of God moves among them. And the place is lit up. We're coming on our, our way to Pentecost where that service will be held and that occasion which the church will think about uh, the Pentecost itself. The story goes on though, because it goes on and it picks up different ones. Um, they replace Judas, and then the first of many martyrs is stoned, Stephen is stoned. Then Saul the terrorist commits his life to Christ. We talked about him uh, a few days ago. And he had a blind obedience to the Jewish priest, and yet he joined the people of the way a radical conversion, a transformed person, we would say. And then the gospel goes from Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Acts tells us about the geographical barriers of the desert and of the ocean and of the seas and different ways in which they are, they are called to act upon the face of the earth. But it also begins to unpack the racial and religious barriers. And that's a big deal in the New Testament. The second half of the New Testament goes deep into this story of how is it that we think about racial differences? How is it we think about religious differences? The chief issue for the emerging church dealt with the evangelization of the Gentiles. This is the first big knockdown drag out theological argument in the New Testament. They come together to talk about what's embedded in this story. And it's about what to do with the Gentiles. They were beginning to have an interest in the gospel. They were converting. They were inviting Christ into their life. They were taking up the practice of Christian faith. And yet they were considered the unwashed. They were considered unclean by uh, by the Jews. 
They were excluded from what the church was doing and they were questioned whether they could be accepted. And so there's a canopy over the book of Acts chapters 10 and 11 and we're only going to read out of chapter 11 when Peter was summoned to Joppa because of Dorcas' death. And while he was there, he had a dream. He had a wonderful, amazing clarity of vision about this issue. So let's read this, this chapter. Let's read these verses. I'll read them out loud and you can follow along. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, remember this is the center of things, even at this time in the Christian church, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Jerusalem was the center of Jewish belief. Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step saying I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision there was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven being lowered by its four corners and it came close to me as I looked at it closely I saw four-footed animals beasts of prey reptiles and birds of the air and I also heard the voice saying to me get up Peter kill and eat and I replied by no means Lord for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth but a second time the voice answered from heaven what God has made clean you must not call profane didn't just happen once it happened three times then everything was pulled back up to heaven. The dream was over. And at that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in, in, in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. How old were you when you had your first recalibration of what you had learned in the faith? You know, where that sneaking feeling that you had that what you had been told was not quite truthful. And you had to recalibrate your faith. How old were you when that happened? The Apostle Paul talks about the maturity that happens with, 
with us that we, as children, we believe like children do, we act like children do, but when we become mature, we put away childish things. He's talking about transformation. He's talking about maturity. We do it in almost everything that we do. We learn a childhood version of it. Then we grow up and we have to recalibrate the story itself and we have to understand that the story has to mature. So Peter's dream predates this theological debate that is simmering. This adds to the trouble. This experience of Peter and the sheet and Cornelius and what happens with the uncircumcised, that indelicate term. And the church has to have this come together, come to Jesus meeting, and they have to hammer out what's the truth here. There can't be several truths. There has to be a truth that rises up out of the differences. And Acts 15 is the story of that debate, and it was a major conflicting battle over the scriptures. Who's in and who's out? They were practicing the distinction between that in the early church, who's in and who's out. But it's also about the relationship between God and the scriptures. This may be one of the first lessons they teach you in seminary is how to hold this dialogue within yourself of what the Bible says and of the living, non-contained God who is spirit and mystery. And seminarians have to figure this out as well as all of us in the church. It's not about the limits of the freedom of God's love and embrace. And up until this point, the mission of Jesus and his disciples was directed solely to the Jewish persons, Jewish people, the people of Israel. That was their target for evangelism. And there were a few notable exceptions of outsiders who came to faith, but they weren't really included in the community like the Jews were who had converted to become people of the way. And Peter expanded the terms of belonging. Imagine there's a door that's in and there's a door that's out. And the church was trying to figure out how do these two have relationship? Who gets in and who do we throw out? Might be the other version of that. This dream gave Peter spiritual authority. I love that, don't you? this gumption that he had inside of him, this convincing that took place because he had an encounter with the mystery of a dream that God sent his way. Complete with imagery, complete with a big voice, complete with a give and take, and an assertion of a truth. Peter expanded the terms of belonging. Because of Peter's vision, a God-fearing Gentile could be welcomed with open arms. This is what took place because of this experience in Joppa. And the church has been asking questions about identity ever since. What do you need to do to be a part of Jesus' community? My friend and colleague, Kathy Pickett, in Kansas City, we worked together for, I don't know, 12 or 14 years. And her grandmother, she, Kathy was a part of a five-generation family. And the matriarch was 90-something, and Julia, and she was wonderful. She was an absolute amazing woman. And her question 
to Kathy and then to me was, do you have to believe in the hocus pocus to be a believer? That's an absolutely profound, wonderful question. What do you have to believe in order to be a follower of Jesus? She was parsing it out at the end of her life, not in the beginning. She was still thinking. She was still growing. What do you need to do to be a part of Jesus' community? What rituals do you need to participate in? What earnestness in worship and what generosity in giving? In other words, what hoops do you need to jump through to be a part of the community of Christ? And there's some other questions, less churchy, I admit. What sexual behavior is acceptable or not? What attitude toward racism and political views and even science, that argument of science and faith? What do you have to think and believe in order to be a part of Christ's kingdom? And at the root of this is the question of authority. How do we decide? Scripture? Scripture says a lot, to be honest. There was a lot of what we looked at and read this morning that I'm not sure everybody believes. From my reading of people, of understanding, I'm not sure we all believe uh, everything exactly the same. What about tradition? Tradition is 140 years old here, something like that. We're not only isolated, we're a part of a tradition church that is scattered all across the Midwest. We are a part of that ethos as well. Traditional authority was in upheaval. It was uh, upended in Peter's vision, though it's hardly, he's hardly the first one to come along and to change the status quo. You should take a course in church history because it moves from one crisis to another, to a different person, to a different issue, and it is, it is just bouncing across the pages of time where the challenge to the status quo happens and somebody gets upset. And then they call a big meeting together. Tony Campolo, one of my real wonderful heroes in preaching and social work and his work with students, was called up before the conservative believers and charged with heresy back in the hmm, late 80s or 90s. And it was in some ways it was a part of this story. He was charged with heresy. They held a heresy trial with him. The status quo gets upset every now and then. And it's hard to argue with, God told me this. Some people will use that as a rationale. And harder still to form a community among those who each claim God has told them something different. That's why we have a church on here on this corner and over there and behind us. There's another one over here, another one over there. And then you start looking at the Baptist churches. You know, the church growth movement in Baptist life has been a good argument. That's the way we start a new church. That's the way it happens. So what's the proper relationship between one's experience and the time-honored foundations of church doctrine? This is a tough issue. It's a delicate issue. At one extreme stands a rigid, well-defined rationale for inclusion and exclusion. We know what we're doing when we call balls and strikes and some people get in and some people do not get in. 
Baptists have been notorious for this, along with other Christian churches, mostly from another era. Those churches typically practiced closed communion. Only the members come up here, don't you know? Uh, decades ago, I decided that was not the way for me. And in my autonomy as a personal believer and minister, I decided, I didn't call a big thing, but I decided all persons are welcome. Maybe you like that, maybe you don't like it. That's what I have done. And that's been a part of this whole idea. We preached against divorce and drinking and interracial marriages. We preached against those things and a whole assortment of other very rigid social views. And over the long history of Baptist, you know, you can almost create a profile of things. We've always had the rules and the regs that have to be followed, that have defined the church, and essentially the rules and regs that have kept some people out. Churches that draw these kinds of lines need big erasers of confession and forgiveness and humility and reconciliation because sometimes we get it wrong. The church gets it wrong. I know you have a hard time believing that. I'm surprised you didn't jump up and down and scream and yell about that. I give us a lot of grace. I think that's part of who I am, but it's part of my role as a minister is to offer grace to you. We're trying to get love right. We should strive to recognize that love supersedes all of our rules and regulations. But it raises the question of what are the guardrails of faith? What are the essentials? Knowing full well the diversity of faith represented even in this small congregation has a variety of ways of answering the same issues. We do say this is God's table. All are welcome here. Nobody seems upset about that. I say it every time that we offer communion. I err on the side of inclusion. You know, my old college roommate, God bless him, from West Texas, that'll give you a good hint, had all kinds of sayings, and he would say there's a ditch on both sides of the road. This apparently is what they say in West Texas. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. Which one are we going to veer off into? And then how do we correct? And then, oh my goodness, look, we're falling off into the other ditch. I wonder if our open arms are unwittingly call, causing spiritual harm. Is it faithful to take away all the boundaries? No matter. We all wrestle with all of these things. The church, uh, the history even of this church has been a wrestling of what do these things mean? Because we always encounter and love people who don't fit into our boxes. And we do have our boxes, even in this church. Even Brother Steve's very eloquent telling of a beautiful story, we still have our sense of exclusion. And as a pastor, I take great comfort in knowing that questions of identity and belonging or as old as the church. It goes way back into the New Testament where we get this story. It gives me even more comfort to know the question isn't actually ours to answer. 
The heart of Christianity is never what we do. The heart of Christianity is what does God do? And the humility part comes in recognizing the difference between those two. The community of God's people doesn't spring up because of our activity. God's kingdom is not waiting on us to act. It comes from God. God drives this this thing along. God provides the energy and the direction. Peter's vision was, after all, from God and not of his own making. As long as we err on the side of love and stay open to the Holy Spirit's guidance, we follow the commandment Jesus gave the community formed in his name. This is a big deal if you read Jesus. The commandment of love. To love one another so people will know we are Christ's disciples. This is the right service to ask this. Do you remember in your life, back in the old days, like a hundred years ago, when black and white TV sat on a little metal stand or maybe sat up on a counter and the screen was about that big and up top were, you know, looked like rabbit ears, we called them. And you could move them around and you could adjust the picture on the two or three channels, maybe four if you lived in, I lived in Dallas, and so we had four channels. Remember those days? Some of you do. You had to get up and turn the knob. Or you had a child, that's why we had children say, okay, get up and walk over there and turn to channel this or that. Uh, We had to fix the picture. We had to adjust everything. And back in the early days of black and white TV, there was a comedy duo named Burns and Allen, made up of George Burns and Gracie Allen. They were wonderful. They were so terrific. George was smart. He was all-knowing. And he confidently smoked a cigar on stage right there beside Gracie. And Gracie was sweet and innocent. But she was sometimes portrayed as a bit of a dimwit. And realize both of them have hammered out these characters from lots and lots and lots of performances. And so they figured out who they are and they sort of grew into these characters of who they were. And both were deftly acting out their character. And yet just below the surface, in Gracie's dim-witted character, she possessed a profound and a simple wisdom. She was always giving the straight line, the good line to George. And Gracie Allen died decades before George did. And the story goes that after her death, George was sorting through her papers and on top of everything in her desk, he found an envelope that had his name on it. And it was in Gracie's handwriting. And when he opened it, the note inside said, George, Never place a period where God places a comma. That's a good theology. For some of us, the theology that we inherited as a child needs updating. For some of us, the things that we heard about the world need updating. The isolationism, the exclusion, the calling of balls and strikes over other people's behavior, all of that needs updating. That line about commas and periods are typical ways we view life. 
we will put down a period, we've done this in the church for decades, as though life was neatly segmented and unchanging, but we seldom recognize the hopefulness that a comma will offer for the role of mystery and grace. And it actually gives God a little room to operate when we don't put the period down in the wrong place. Living faith is as much mystery as it is certainty. It's a mixture of the two. And you have to have both in order to be a dynamic living follower of Christ. You have to hold these ideas in some balance. Faith is living in the questions, allowing God to, to place either a period or a comma as God wishes. The role of faith for us is to trust God enough to let God decide where to put the comma and where to put the period. Anne Lamott, uh, that wonderful writer, I love Anne Lamott, once wrote, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the people that you do. That's pretty amazing. You know, it turns out that we are stewards of God's love, but we're not gatekeepers. What if we turned our attention to seeing all the people that God loves and not feel that we have to call balls and strikes, not to feel that urge to do so, that judgmentalism that comes with that? On everyone that we encounter, both inside the church and outside the church, what if we could determine we would be a church that opens up its arms? This is my vision of what the church ought to be. It opens up its arms as wide and inclusive as God holds God's arms. The arms of love that wishes to transform us, both us who have judgment to offer and others who need to be moving along life's way. And maybe they found their way and maybe they have not. The grace and goodness of God. May God give us a spirit of transformation, of the excitement of seeing that people are being changed. They're being loved, first by God, but also by one another. Amen.